I want, I want, I want, me, 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 mine, 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 now, now, now. You know you're responsible for what you hear. You know you're responsible for what you hear. Greetings and welcome to Thoughts from Meharry Head, the weekly podcast where I talk about, well, whatever happens to be bouncing around inside my head at the moment, but mostly focusing on constitutional issues and political decentralization. This is episode 54 of Thoughts from Meharry Head, and I appreciate you tuning in. This week, I'm going to talk about the necessary and proper clause in the Constitution. So as I record this, we are in the midst of the Republican National Convention, and tonight Donald Trump is going to go out on the stage and accept the Republican nomination for president, and people will cheer, and America will be great again. And I'm sure in the midst of the convention, you are all waiting with bated breath to hear my opinion on the Republican convention. And so I thought before I get into my main topic, I will just give you a few thoughts. Who cares? That's pretty much it. That sums it all up. Because, you know, these politicians, they get up there and they make these flowery speeches and they talk about freedom and they talk about liberty and they don't mean a bit of it. It's all a bunch of theatrics. So I don't pay attention. I don't care. You shouldn't care either. Now, I I did find the whole plagiarism thing a little bit interesting, the accusation that Donald's wife plagiarized Michelle Obama. And if you're interested in my quick thoughts on that, head over to my website, michaelmeharry.com, and you can read a little article. Uh, It's not what you think. Uh, Again, it's a little bit of I don't really care. Um, Really, this whole thing, this whole election cycle has demonstrated the absurdity of federal electoral politics. And I'll just leave it at that. What I really want to talk about today is the necessary and proper clause in the Constitution. And a few weeks ago, I talked about the General Welfare Clause. And the necessary and proper clause is a a second clause that is often used by federal judges and progressives and conservatives and basically anybody who wants to do something that might be... Uh, or might not be authorized by the Constitution. They'll, they'll turn to the Necessary and Proper Clause. In fact, this clause has often been called the Elastic Clause because it, it supposedly gives people the option of expanding the powers of federal government. But that's not what it means at all. Now, most of your politicians and, and your judges and your people in the political class, they will tell you that basically necessary and proper means whatever I want. You know, it, it's it's not the necessary and proper clause. It's the anything and everything clause. That's how most people treat it. But that was not certainly what 
the framers of the Constitution intended. That's not what the ratifiers understood. We know from past episodes of Thoughts from a Hairy Head, and and you can go to my website and look at my Constitution 101 section and and get a really good idea of this. The Constitution created a limited federal government, a government with limited enumerated powers. And when we say enumerated powers, that means that these powers are spelled out. And anything that is not found in the Constitution remains a power of the states and the people. So it doesn't make any sense to say that the intent was a limited federal government and, oh, on the end of the uh, enumerated powers, we tagged on this clause that allows the federal government to do whatever we want because it's no longer limited, right? So what exactly is the necessary and proper clause? Well, here's what it says. It says, Congress has the power to make all laws which shall be necessary and proper for carrying into execution the foregoing powers, the ones before it, and all other powers vested by this Constitution in the government of the United States or in any department or officer thereof. Now, it's interesting to note that Alexander Hamilton said that basically, if you took the necessary and proper clause out, along with the supremacy clause, that the Constitution would be exactly the same as it is with them in there. So basically, he was saying that these clauses are a truism. They give no additional power to the federal government. They merely state what is already implicit. This is what he wrote. It may be affirmed with perfect confidence that the constitutional operation of the intended government would be precisely the same if these clauses were entirely obliterated as if they were repeated in every article. They are only declaratory of a truth which would have resulted by necessary and unavoidable implication from the very act of constituting a federal government and vesting it with certain specified powers. That was in Federalist 33. Now, of course, Hamilton pulled the classic bait-and-switch, and after ratification, he used the Necessary and Proper Clause to justify the power to charter a national bank. Thomas Jefferson vehemently opposed Hamilton in, in his suddenly loose construction of the Constitution. This is what Jefferson said. The Constitution allows only the means which are necessary, not those which are merely convenient for affecting the enumerated powers. During the Virginia Ratifying Convention, George Nicholas testified to the fact that the Necessary and Proper Clause does nothing to expand powers as he attempted to soothe the minds of those who feared that the federal government would take it that way, exactly the way Hamilton did. He said, suppose it had been inserted at the end of every power, that they should have the power to make laws to carry that power into execution. Would this have increased their power? If, therefore, it could not have increased their powers, if placed at the end of each power, it cannot increase them at the end of them all. This clause only enables them to carry into execution the powers given them, but gives them no additional power. So, from Hamilton before the Constitution was ratified, to Thomas Jefferson afterward, and George Nicholas during the ratifying convention— All of them make it clear that the Necessary and Proper Clause does not give the federal government additional powers. It's not an elastic clause. It doesn't stretch to allow for for more authority or more power. But what exactly does it mean? Why is it there in the first place? Well, legal documents delegating power often contain a Necessary and Proper Clause, and it has a precise, specific definition that was well understood in the founding era. 
Basically, it, it allows an agent, so that would be the government, to exercise powers that are not explicitly spelled out in the legal document, but they're necessary to exercise the specific authority that's given. So let's use an example. Let's say that I write out a contract and I give you the authority to run my grocery store. Now, I don't need to specify that you have the power to pay a guy to clean the floors or to hire a mechanic to fix the freezer when it breaks down. Those powers are necessary and proper to running a grocery store. But necessary and proper powers don't give you the right to give away all of my food and turn the store into a pornography shop. Just because I gave you the authority to run it doesn't give you the authority to do those things. Now, according to constitutional scholar Rob Nadelson, as the framers understood the concept, necessary and proper powers remain constrained by specific criteria. The power had to be necessary to carry out the original purpose, so like purchasing corn from a farmer to sell at the grocery store. That would be necessary and proper to my grocery store analogy. It also has to be a customary way of carrying out the original purpose. The guy running my grocery store couldn't get rid of all the food and sell porno because that would clearly not constitute a customary way of running a grocery store. And finally, an incidental power can never rise to a level greater than the original power delegated. My grocery store manager would have the authority to pay a mechanic for fixing a broken freezer, but he wouldn't have the power to sell the building and invest the money in the stock market for me. So the Necessary and Proper Clause does not add anything to the authority already delegated to Congress. It does not allow for the creation of new powers. The clause simply reaffirms that the federal government possesses the flexibility to exercise the enumerated powers that are already delegated. Nothing more, nothing less. Well, that's it for this episode of Thoughts from Meharry Head. We're another 10 minutes closer to freedom. I really appreciate you listening to the show. If you enjoyed it, do me a favor and spread the word. And feel free to send me any thoughts or ideas at michael.meharry at 10th Center.com. And oh, don't forget to go to iTunes and subscribe to the podcast for free if you haven't done it already. Thanks again, and I'll talk to you next week.